the royal banners forward go, the cross shines forth in mystic glow, for he in flesh, our flesh who made, our sentence bore, our ransom paid. From him by Venantius Fortunatus in the fourth century. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. What is the meaning of the cross? Before I came to know Christ some years ago, I would sometimes hear Christians explain, well, the cross symbolizes that God is love and forgives you. But to be honest, my eyes glazed over at such explanations. What does any of that even mean? I wasn't convinced, frankly, that those Christians even knew what those phrases meant. If they did, I reasoned, Surely their lives would have looked substantially different from the rest of the world around them, but I saw little compelling evidence of that. These phrases seem to to me to be no more than pious platitudes and drifting about in the lofty realm of theological ideas right alongside Plato's ideal chair. What does any of this have to do with my concrete reality, my real day-to-day life. At the time, you see, I didn't even know I needed forgiveness. I was, by my own reckoning, a good person, as erroneous as that evaluation was. It was everybody else who needed fixing. And what can a phrase like, God is love, mean to someone who had very little experience of what real love was? I just couldn't get my head around why it was that Christians seemed to adore and worship a man who had been subjected to shameful torture and public execution, who was, by all appearances, a tragic failure. I'm convinced that much of our contemporary secular culture now sees things as I did then. If religion can be compartmentalized from my everyday life and reality, then it can be safely ignored. So few young people and people in general are identifying as Christians now, not because they actively disagree with Christianity per se or hate Christ, although things are shifting to be perfectly honest, but because by and large they're indifferent. They don't care because it seems to be of no real consequence to the things that they actually care about. So they turn to business, or politics, or sports, or sex, or their families, and leave the cross to those religious hobbyists. But in time, I discovered that the cross does matter. It matters supremely, preeminently, not just to religious hobbyists, but to everyone in every compartment of their lives all the time. And it does so not simply as a sterile reminder of some event that happened way in the past, but as a pattern that we can live into now, that has the power to transform all of our relationships and how we look at and experience the world around us. How can I make such a claim? Well, it has to do, first of all, with sacrifice. In this world, everybody makes sacrifices for what really matters to them, We sacrifice to bind ourselves to a higher purpose, 
and to people and groups around us. We can all understand what I mean when I say, for example, that sacrifices must be made to get you through law school, to achieve success in your work, to keep a marriage together and flourishing, or to keep a family or a church and a company together, or even a nation together, and to bind us all effectively around a common purpose. Sacrifice is the bowl of eggs we must break for the omelet of life. We make sacrifices all the time, and we're seldom even aware of it. But what we make sacrifices for, how we make those sacrifices, and what we choose to offer up matters. And we all know this. Not every sacrifice is equally effective. Some can even be rejected by the purpose or God we offer them to. Now, there are two primary types of sacrifices that we can make. I want to break these down. First of all, we can choose to sacrifice others in order to draw to ourselves the things that we want in life and to ward away the things that we don't want. This is usually the easy way forward, the obvious way, the most expedient way. In John's Gospel, we see Caiaphas and Pilate making this sort of sacrifice. At the end of John 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, abrades his fellow priests. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is more expedient for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It was a clear choice. We can put this one man to death on the altar of our security and influence, or else risk the wrath of Rome's vengeful armies decimating the whole city and removing us from our place of power because of a perceived political threat. And we see it in Pilate's cowardice in chapter 19. From then on, the text says, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so, despite knowing Jesus' innocence, Pilate sacrifices him on the altar of his ambition. Just one innocent victim, and we can all go forward. Just throw one virgin a year to the dragon outside town, and the rest of us can go on relatively peacefully with our lives. It might sound ridiculous or extreme, but we essentially do the same thing when we silently agree, for example, to designate a black sheep of the family to blame all of our problems on when we throw a co-worker under the bus with office gossip, when we make up some dumb excuse about why we didn't finish our homework or how traffic made us late to work. Personally, I'm glad I don't have to make that excuse because I live just across the street. It'd be tempting otherwise. Or when we beat up a political straw man. It does work in a way, this kind of sacrifice. It can keep us for a while from spiraling into total anarchy and chaos, but at what cost to ourselves and others? And then there's a second kind of sacrifice, illumined for us by the cross of Christ. John's Gospel, more than any of the other three, depicts Jesus as the one throughout his passion who is in control of all of the circumstances despite appearances. 
In it, Jesus describes his coming crucifixion as him being lifted up and glorified. We see him intentionally going to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knows that Judas can find him. When the party of his would-be captors arrives, he addresses them first and questions them. And then they all involuntarily genuflect when he identifies himself with the divine name, I am. When he says, I thirst on the cross, some guy dutifully goes to fetch him wine to drink. And when he dies, he first bows his head and then gives up his spirit, rather than vice versa, as we might expect. It's clear from John's Gospel, as Jesus himself says, that no one takes his life from him. He, the good shepherd, lays it down for the sheep. He gives up his life for his friends, and then he takes it up again. We see in this picture not a passive tragic victim, not a doormat, but the true king reigning from his throne in glory and executing justice. We see the great high priest offering himself to his father as the perfect and unblemished sacrifice for fallen humanity. This voluntary self-sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross is, for the biblical narrative, the strange, grotesque, beautiful, mysterious, and paradoxical way that God and humanity are bound back together and reconciled. Here the fall is reversed, the veil is torn open, and the gates of paradise are opened to us again. Here on the wood of the cross, the tree of life, from the Garden of Eden is restored to us. Here at the cross, heaven and earth, mercy and judgment, glory and suffering, Jew and Gentile, the vertical and the horizontal, intersect. They are reunited and reconciled, not just temporarily, but eternally and effectually. The cross stands not just as an historical peculiarity or curiosity, but as a pattern of self-sacrifice for us all to emulate. Whoever would follow me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. For whoever would save his life in this world will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A little more than 20 years ago, Jim Collins published his best-selling business book, Good to Great. You might have heard of it. It describes the results of his team's groundbreaking study in how a mediocre company can make the great shift to achieving enduring greatness. But you can imagine another way of posing their research question. They might have asked, what kind of sacrifice binds companies together in the most effective, stable, and fruitful way possible? They identified just a handful of companies that fit their qualifications, those that made the transition from good to great and maintained it for 15 years or longer. And they studied vigorously what these organizations and their leadership had in common and that the other comparison companies lacked. What they found surprised them. They discovered that the leaders of these companies, despite their radical success, were almost totally unknown in the wider world because they were genuinely humble and diligently avoided public honors. They channeled their ambitions into the company rather than themselves. 
They set up those around them and their successors for even greater success, even if that meant that they would be forgotten and overshadowed. These leaders looked outward to others and to God or to good fortune to give credit. And they looked inward to themselves to take responsibility when things went wrong. They refused to blame other people, external factors, or bad luck for their mistakes. They also possessed an unwavering determination to do what it took to produce long-term results, building in rigorous but fair standards and habits company-wide. They habitually faced the brutal facts and realities around them with courage while maintaining confidence that they'd eventually come out on the other side the better for it. They kept discipline over their passions, distractions, and idiosyncrasies, meticulously simplifying and defining the aim or niche of their companies and giving up every pursuit or opportunity that didn't fit. What was it that bound these companies together and drove them to enduring greatness? In a word, they followed the pattern of the cross. They voluntarily embraced painful truth, their own limitations and vulnerabilities. They embraced long-term, unglamorous responsibility for themselves and others. They disciplined themselves and practiced personal humility. In other words, they loved their companies, the people they served, and their employees. They practiced self-sacrifice for the sake of something higher. And they found paradoxically that on the other side was the glory and success they had to lay aside to get there. It was a little surprise resurrection. According to Collins, the comparison companies and their leaders, those who were unable to make that transition, consistently tried to use the magic wand of personal charisma and genius, domineering leadership, shady deals, blame shifting, or major acquisitions to avoid taking up the cross and looking at the hard truth about themselves, to avoid simplifying their aims or humbling themselves. They sought shortcuts to greatness, riches, and personal fame. And they frequently sabotaged their successors and set up their businesses for failure when they left so that they could be recognized as the unparalleled savior. They didn't die consciously and voluntarily, so they died unconsciously and involuntarily. They made the sacrifices of Caiaphas and Pilate, and they reaped their fruits. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. As a Christian, I now believe in the power of the cross, not just because I think it really happened historically, although I do, of course, and not just because by it I know my debts were forgiven and that God loves me, although I know all that is true now, too, but because by it I make sense of everything else. By it I can rightly judge the trajectory of my whole life, my relationships, my thoughts and desires, and both my supposed successes and failures. By it, I have a compass rose to guide me in all of my decisions. I believe in the cross of Christ because it works. What are you willing to make sacrifices for in your life? What kind of sacrifices are you willing to make for them? Are you following the pattern of Caiaphas and Pilate or of Jesus upon the cross?
when I ask myself these questions, the reality is often harsh. The burden of truth can it sometimes be intolerable. But the cost of willful ignorance, of avoiding responsibility, is even higher. What if we decided to take up the cross and voluntarily face the unpleasant truths about ourselves, our families and situations, or even an unpleasant truth about ourselves, and asked ourselves how we contributed to this situation, how we might take responsibility for beginning to set it right? What if we decided to take up the cross and throw our arms open to our pain, limitation, and vulnerability? What if we took up the cross and resolved to die to self, to our petty ambitions, jealousies, ingratitudes, and base desires? What would happen? Maybe we'd find ourselves surprised. Maybe our sufferings could be transformed into glory, illumined by a mystic glow. Maybe they could even be the place where heaven and earth collided. And we learned what God is love really means. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.